Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with one of the biggest exhibitions of 2018, Thomas Cole's Journey, Atlantic Crossings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. My guest is Betsy Kornhauser, who, along with Tim Berenger, curated the show. It's on view at the Met through May 13th. Thomas Cole's Journey examines Cole's origins in the north of England during the Industrial Revolution and the impact Britain and travels through England and Italy had on Cole's career and work. The exhibition is the first time Cole's work has been examined in the context of his European experiences, and it aims to present Cole as not just an American figure, but as a transatlantic artist. The outstanding exhibition catalog, one of the best I've seen in some time, was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $65. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Joel Smith joins me to discuss Peter Hujar, Speed of Life. But first, Betsy Kornhauser, after the break. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum, features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu slash 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. You really can't miss this one. The major performance installation by Tanya Bruguera, untitled Havana 2000, at the Museum of Modern Art, can be experienced only through March 11th. On view for mere hours before being shut down by the Cuban government in 2000, this work signifies Bruguera's complex relationship with authority and the contradictions of life following the Cuban Revolution. The installation will be closed on Mondays for maintenance. Get tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today before it ends. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents Joseph Albers in Mexico through March 28th. The exhibition features both rarely shown and iconic paintings by Joseph Albers, alongside photographs and photo collages of the artist's trips to archaeological sites in Mexico beginning in the 1930s. Through correspondence, ephemera, and works drawn from the collections of the Guggenheim and the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, Joseph Albers in Mexico presents an opportunity to experience the least known aspect of Albers's practice, photography, offering new perspective on this celebrated abstract artist. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash josephalbers. And we're back. Betsy Kornhauser, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I think to understand where your exhibition comes from and what it investigates, that we have to start with a bit of biography. Where was Thomas Cole born? When did he leave there? And where did he go? Well, Thomas Cole was born in the north of England, in Bolton, Lemoore, in 1801. And this small town was actually situated in the very heart of the 
Industrial Revolution as it was launching during Cole's childhood, essentially. And so it's this is a very important part of Cole's biography. He, as a child, experienced the horrors of the Industrial Revolution. As a young man, he worked in a calico factory designing the beautiful calico fabrics that were used for women's dresses at the time. But at the same time, he witnessed the hand workers rebellion against the factories that just pop up uh, in his region. And in fact, Ned Ludd, the leader of the Luddite rebellion, was based in Cole's hometown of Bolton. So we have in the exhibition, in the first section of our show, which deals with the Industrial Revolution's presence and how it impacted Cole really for the rest of his life, we found this rare, only known print of Ned Ludd dressed in a calico dress, leading his band as they're attempting to burn and destroy factories. So when does Cole move to the United States and where does he go? Well, because of the horrors of this, the Industrial Revolution, his father, James Cole, lost his job, as many of the hand workers did in that region. And so they were, the family was essentially, they were economic migrants. And they arrive in Philadelphia in 1818. And that was 200 years ago, which becomes a kind of celebration for our exhibition. Cole's arrival in the United States was 200 years ago. And they arrive in Philadelphia, and his father is basically seeking work. And the family has to move a number of times to Ohio. And eventually, Cole really strikes out uh, with this extraordinary ambition to become a painter. And he appears in Philadelphia in 1818, when that city, you know, had a fairly interesting presence of art with the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts as a kind of leading institution where Cole was able to to see works by the artists in that city. The catalyzing event of the show happens in 1829 when Cole, who is 28 years old, sails from the United States back to Britain and then soon to continental Europe. Why does he go and what does he see in Britain that you think and that the show thinks impacted him? Well, he was a very ambitious young artist. And even though he achieved extraordinary success in the latter part of the 1820s, painting scenes of the American wilderness in the Catskills and attract some major patrons, he still felt the need to go back to experience both contemporary landscape art in Europe and to have the opportunity to study art of the old world. And it's important to note that as a young man growing up in Northern England, he had never been to London. And so I think that his ambition drove him back in 1829. So he arrives in the thriving metropolis of London uh, in that year and just immersed himself in museum visits. The National Gallery had opened only four years earlier in a large mansion in London. And that's one of the first stops he makes. He goes to the National Gallery where he's able to study the works of Claude Lorraine. And he, you know, of course, by this point, Cole has identified landscape art as his 
prime genre, but wants to really view the great works by renowned landscape painters of the past. And then at the same time, he finds his way. He has letters of introduction from some of his patrons in the United States and artists like Washington Alston had given him tips on, you know, which artists to meet. And so very early on, he visits the studio of Turner. And um, we explore this moment in Cole's career in some depth in our show because it is, it's very fascinating. He was completely dazzled by the progressive nature of Turner's art at this point. But at the same time, he was a bit horrified by Turner's seemingly coarse appearance. Okay, okay, hold on. Define seemingly coarse appearance because that's too fantastic to let go. <laughs> <laughs> Cole writes in his journal, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you know, he he was taken aback by his rough attire and sort of short, stout physique and kind of rough manner. He expected to meet a gentleman. And Turner kind of looked like he'd just come back from fishing or something. I mean, he was not, you know, that was not his persona. And yet he was so progressive in the art of landscape painting at this point that so Cole had this kind of mixed response of being overwhelmed, almost unnerved by the progressive nature of his paintings. And, and absorbed so much. I mean, he mentions in particular seeing Turner's great Hannibal crossing the Alps, which is in our exhibition, and we're deeply grateful to the Tate for that loan. He was dazzled by that painting and the swirling vortex in that particular canvas p- appears in Cole's Course of Empire and more particularly in Cole's Oxbow. And using the storm as an emotional focal point of a composition is also picked up by Cole's followers, Church, Thomas Moran. I mean, it it becomes a major influence. So this meeting was a very important one. And he then went on to meet John Constable, and he had a more, more of a friendship with Constable and was not surprisingly dazzled by Constable's cloud studies and again, the way that Constable uses clouds, as as Cole described it, as the very soul of the painting. And we then see Cole taking on on plein air oil study and eventually doing pure cloud studies himself. And this will be a major focal point of our exhibition. We have five breathtaking plein air cloud studies by Constable in our exhibition along with Constable's major canvas, Hadley Castle. It's a a large canvas that depicts a ruined castle in the English countryside. And it's kind of a statement about the decline of England. And this painting would also deeply impact Thomas Cole's later work, particularly The Course of Empire. Let's unpack Turner and, and Constable a bit. Let's start with the cloud studies. The cloud studies you have in the show are are not of bucolic, puffy white clouds. They're kind of more specific than that. What are the kinds of cloud studies you selected for the show and why? I mean, I think we were really going for what is most typical of, of Constable's work. I mean, I in doing reading about Constable and actually doing a field trip 
up to Northern England with Tim Berenger as my driver, my co-curator. And Tim himself grew up in Northern England and sort of looking at that landscape, every time I've ever done a landscape, major landscape show, whether it was in Australia or Germany, I do believe curators have to immerse themselves in that landscape. And so we, Tim was my guide to Northern England and looking at the constantly changing cloud effects was a revelation. And, and not surprisingly, it was in Northern England where the actual science of the study of clouds first emerges. And Constable writes extensively about the importance of clouds, again, as the kind of centerpiece of emotion for his paintings. So we were drawn to his most dynamic cloud studies, where they are very vigorous, vigorously and quickly painted, capturing, you know, a moment in time where clouds have very powerful formations that evoke emotions. And that's how Cole would use these cloud studies, interpret them and expand them into his large compositions as the centerpiece for emotion for sublime aspects of the landscape, but also when he embeds his paintings with moral messages, it's often the clouds that carry the message. You know, Turner's painting of Hannibal crossing the Alps and these constable cloud studies and, and, and weathery, moody, intense paintings form a real contrast with one of the major coal paintings you have in the show from before when Cole goes to Britain. That painting is his view of the round top in the Catskills, the 1827 painting in Boston. Is, is there an instructive moment there between how Cole treats clouds and weather in the Boston painting and then what he sees and begins to think about in England? Absolutely. I think in the early wilderness paintings, the Catskill paintings, He's more inclined to use geological formations as a kind of a way of conveying meaning. He hasn't really mastered the art of capturing the reality of the clouds in front of him. And so in that early round top painting, the more powerful natural features take form in the anthropomorphic trees and the geological features kind of a large rock in the front center of the of the painting. And we deliberately end our exhibition with Frederick Church's Above the Clouds, which is Church's memorial to Cole shortly after his death. Of course, Church was a student for two years in Cole's studio. And that's the exact same site looking out toward the Hudson River. And you can see how Cole, by this point, has imparted to his student Church his strong abilities in observing clouds and depicting them in plein air oil studies. And Church, of course, runs with it and becomes much more of a scientific observer of clouds. But, it, but I think it's really nice that we begin and end with that one site. And you can see over the course of the exhibition how brilliantly Cole moves through his career absorbing the great lessons provided by these European journeys and then imparting them to his greatest student, Frederick Church. It all makes me kind of wonder in a speculative way how impactful the inclusion of weather and clouds 
in European painting and then in American painting as it comes in through coal has an impact on American photography. Photographers, with one prominent exception, in, in America loved, lived to print clouds and weather into the, into the empty skies of their landscape pictures. And surely they noticed what painters were doing and how painters were using weather and atmospherics. And that's, I absolutely agree. And, you know, while I was installing the show and looking at these cloud studies, I kept thinking of Alfred Stieglitz's equivalence as a kind of high moment. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not sure Stieglitz was aware of, I mean, I'd be very surprised with his roots in Lake George that he wasn't very aware of the paintings of the Hudson River School. So clouds, weather, what else do we see coal absorbing from England? We'll get to Europe in a minute that we should take special note of. Well, I think Cole, while he's absorbing the lessons of the art of the great masters before him, and then directly engaging with the leading contemporary artists of the day, he was also very absorbed in studying the history of his nation, of his nation of birth. And again, revisiting how the metropolis of London was thriving and but the uh, landscape to the north, uh, you know, the landscape around, the more provincial landscape was somewhat in decline. And these great lessons of history, I think, rise and decline of great civilizations was beginning to take hold. He was also noticing the architecture of London. Cole would later become an amateur architect, and he was noting the great marble buildings and facades of London architecture. And this would pop up later on in, again, his great Horse of Empire series. Let's get to the continent. Where does Cole go in Europe and what there has a particular impact on him? Well, he leaves London and travels briefly through Paris and moves quickly on arriving in Florence. And really loved the city of Florence. He, While in England, he is somewhat hurt by the existing hierarchy of class systems. He felt a bit rejected in London. Once he arrives in Italy in the warm climate where he can live inexpensively, and in Florence, he's, you know, sort of taken in by a small group of, of expatriate American artists who were living there at the time. They're not major figures, they're, but they warmly welcome him. He finds it such inspirational environment that he just writes with great enthusiasm in his journal about how happy he is to be settled in this beautiful city. And once there, interestingly, his ambition leads him to take life drawing classes at the Florence Academy and really masters, to some degree, life drawing in oil and graphite. And we have examples in the exhibition. But most importantly, it's important to note that in Florence at this time, and this would have been uh, 1830, he's in Italy from late 1829 to 1831, he encounters all of the European artists that flock to Florence and Rome at this time. So there are these large 
expatriate communities from every European country present in these cities. And this is where he begins to engage in the art of en plein air painting. He's recently seen Constable's extraordinary examples, but once in Italy, he leaves Florence, goes out into the countryside to begin to master the art of en plein air painting. And we know, for example, that the French artist Corot was there at the time. And, you know, the Germans were there, the, you know, the Norwegian painters, the English painters, they were all there in Florence and Rome. So in Florence, he, you know, begins to really expand his knowledge of painting technique, again, studying the great old masters. He then moves on to Rome. And Cole is an artist who keeps extraordinary notes in his journal, greatly to our benefit. <laughs> so we know exactly, you know, which paintings he looked at at the Vatican and what he thought of them. And, you know, his emotional responses to the Colosseum and the Roman Forum. And then he produces more and more beautifully and swiftly executed plein air studies of the Roman ruins the aqueducts. He ventures out to Tivoli and explores the gardens of the of Villa d'Este and takes many, many drawings and beautiful oil studies of the ruins and the gardens and the fountains that he encounters. And all of this material becomes tools for his later paintings. And his painting technique just improves by leaps and bounds during this Italian period. He is very adventurous. And while in Rome, he travels down to Naples. And in addition to really improving his own hand as a painter, he's also deeply engaged in studying Roman history as he's examining and studying the Roman ruins. He's also studying the decline of the Roman Empire, and he's deeply affected by it. Let me ask about that for a second. So in 1829, America has you know, moved up the Atlantic River Valleys, pretty much as far up the river valleys as, as, as they go, and is beginning to move across the Catskills and, the, and then the Appalachians and into the first wests. Why at the moment of America's expansion is coal so taken by ruins? Because he equates expansion with eventual ruin. And that's the, the very theme of the course of empire. Seems the most fatalistic relationship possible, especially for somebody in his late 20s to find. <laughs> but not when you consider his childhood. The advance of the industrial presence in northern England destroyed his family's life, essentially. And so unlike native-born artists like Frederick Church and Asher B. Durand, who later, after Cole's death, celebrate Manifest Destiny and the expansion West, and to some extent industrial presence, Cole abhors it. And this is where our exhibition really introduces a break with the traditionally received history of the development of the Hudson River School. We contend and, and essentially prove that Cole, who was a great intellectual, his philosophy was completely at odds 
with the very artists that he taught so carefully and taught them how to approach nature and to revere nature, taking them on treks into the Catskills and the uh, northern parts of New York State, teaching them how to do en plein air drawing, imparting the great lessons he learned about preserving the sublime aspects of nature. It's because of his childhood that's, you know, of, of basically seeing what can happen with rapid transformation of the land and eventual industrial presence in the land. He lived it. And none of our native-born artists understood that in the way that he did. And there, in a nutshell, is the argument for Cole as a transatlantic artist and, and, and for the show. There's this sentence that's very early in the book. You know, it's maybe the second or third sentence of the foreword that was so striking that, that I typed it into my notes. And that sentence is, this exhibition is the first time since 1832, 1832, that Cole's work will be displayed in the same gallery spaces as that of his British contemporaries. And I think what you just said points to what kind of a long oversight that, 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 that's been. Before we get to the Oxbow in the Course of Empire, I want to turn the clock back for one quick second. In 1830, Cole, just before going to Europe, goes to Niagara Falls, and he writes a letter to a patron of his in which he says, I cannot think of going to Europe without having seen them, Niagara. I shall endeavor to impress its features so strongly on my mind that in the midst of the fine scenery of other countries, their grand and beautiful peculiarities shall not be erased. So I love that idea that he has to go see Niagara before he goes back to, to England and Europe. But why? I mean, why was that so important to him? Well, I think Cole was aware that every European artist who came to the, the American shores, who had any ambition as a landscape artist, felt obligated to visit the great natural wonder of the New World, which was Niagara Falls. And it becomes a symbol of the potential of the New World, this great, powerful, natural wonder, you know, God's creation in, in their mind. And so there was a great tradition in Europe of artists coming to America and attempting to portray the great sublime aspects of this natural wonder. So being as ambitious as Cole was, he and, and he had already really settled on the American wilderness as a central theme for his art. And it's important to stress, you know, that that was a radical subject at the time for an art, a landscape painter in the very early decades of the 19th century to take on that subject. I'm sure he felt obligated to take on the challenge of Niagara Falls. He was also interested in engaging in the very lively print culture of the time. In the second section of our exhibition, we touch on the lively development of, of prints of the, land, you know, the wilderness landscape of the New World that were being produced in the early decades of the 19th century by British emigre artists like William Guy Wall and Joshua Shaw. So we have the Hudson River portfolio, you know, and other examples of the thriving print culture. And I think Cole saw this as a way of helping to support himself. It's important to note that he never had any money, really. Um, he was 
a pioneer at this time in the United States as an artist who focused almost exclusively on landscape art. But what that meant was that he was always struggling to make a living. And so engaging in print culture was one way to do that. And while he was in London in 1829, he engages in a project to create landscapes. And one of them was a wonderful view of Niagara Falls, which is in our show, for this publication of scenes of the United States. And Cole's paintings were turned into engravings. And those engravings were then turned into uh, transferware pottery, Staffordshire pottery. And yeah, just to be clear, the painting, Cole's 1830 painting of Niagara Falls at the Art Institute of Chicago is, is also in the show. So this brings us to kind of the great moment of, of, of Cole's career, his simultaneous thinking through working on the Oxbow and the Course of Empire series of paintings. We're going to spend more time on, on, on the Oxbow, I confess, because I like it better and, and because I think it's probably the painting that has had the greater impact on American art and, and non-art culture over the last couple hundred years. The Oxbow is, of course, in, in your collection at the Met and has been for almost 100 years. And I think sometimes paintings that are in New York can be thought of as being more important to the history of art than they are. I always think of Picasso's Les Demoiselles at, um, at the Modern, which is an immensely important painting, but which is, is really the second painting of, of the 20th century after Matisse's Blue Nude in Baltimore to which Les Demoiselles was painted as a response. But, but the Oxbow is, is the real deal. It is the Thunderbolt. And yet it came from somewhere and you spend an entire catalog essay on the painting, which is, which is great. It's kind of amazing that, that there's this immensely famous painting that kind of lives so lightly in the scholarship. So you found that Cole's first experience of, of the place, Mount Holyoke, the Oxbow, etc., comes in 1827. How, how so? How, is, how does he, you know, what does he do and see there in 1827? 1827. Well, Cole was, you know, influenced by his great Hartford patron, Daniel Wadsworth. And it was really Wadsworth that encouraged him to, on a trip back from Boston to not miss this great natural wonder, this, the view of the Oxbow from Mount Holyoke. And so, we know that Cole went through that region on a, on a return trip from Boston. But it was really later while in London when he is you know, beginning to think about the great themes for his art that he encounters the first engraving of the Oxbow and in a travel book by a British travel writer, Basil Hall. And he takes the unusual step very rare for Cole to do, of copying, tracing it out of the book, almost as a memory piece for later consideration. And so this small sheet tracing on, on, on tracing paper that Cole made is in your show. It's at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Yes, that will be in the exhibition. And when Cole returns from his grand tour, probably sooner than he would have liked, he was, again, responsible for taking care of his parents and his siblings financially, and they were harassing him a bit about returning to help them out financially. So he returns and in 1832. And one of the concepts that we introduce in this exhibition is how uh, politically aware Cole was 
He really disliked the presidency and the agenda of Andrew Jackson. And upon his return, Jackson gets reelected for the second time, and, or elected for the second time, and is really expanding his aggressive transformation of the natural world by westward expansion, industrial presence, all of the things that Cole abhorred. And so in some ways, the kind of clash of all of the lofty ideas he returns with, with the reality of what he sees upon his return, leads, in my opinion, to these two great series, The Course of Empire and The Oxbow, which essentially carry the same message. So Cole, having spent all this time in England, I, I, he must have spent some time around the British perspective on on American history and, and the revolution. And one of the real themes of the pre-revolutionary 18th century American colonial experience was how the colonizing power, Britain, doesn't want a coastal America to move inland. That Britain, including during the revolution itself, allies with Native American tribes to try to pin America to the coast to prevent Americans from getting into conflicts with Native Americans in the interior, and how just as Cole is leaving for England, Jackson is making clear that the interior is A-OK, that conflicts with Native Americans is encouraged, that the federal government will support the suppression of Native Americans militarily. Cole must have heard about that dichotomy when he was in England, right? I'm sure that he did. I mean, he was certainly aware, and he references, although it's hard to, to firmly interpret the significance of the presence of Native Americans in his art, he's, he's certainly aware of that history. You know, he is from an earlier generation than the artists that follow in his footsteps. And I think many people want to kind of push him into the generation of church, but he's really a generation earlier coming out of more of a federal, a, you know, aristocratic thinking mindfulness of the ideals of the new republic and the rapid spread of democracy in America, but more particularly the destruction of the landscape that he comes to love in the Hudson Valley and around Catskill, really begin to trouble him. And he sees a kind of similar progression the same progression that he saw in his native country of England, the same progression that had already taken place in ancient Rome and in which he had immersed himself studying it. When he comes back, he begins to see the signs of it. What he had thought of as this pristine new world, upon his return, things had begun to change. And he, he's very aware of the very noticeable rapidly increasing deforestation around his beloved Catskill Mountains. He eventually settles in the farmhouse in Catskill, New York, uh, where he would paint the Oxbow and the Course of Empire. And in some ways, he uses those beloved views as a kind of measuring stick of what's happening. So how does he include or, or really make environmental degradation the central subject of, of the Oxbow? What in the painting can we see and understand as an address of that? So one of Cole's great contributions to 
19th century landscape painting was the development of his compositional device of the panoramic prospect. And you see him beginning to play around with that in his earliest paintings, in Round Top, in his view of Montevideo. It was really in the Oxbow that he uses that great compositional device on a grand scale. He also in, takes the influence of the popular panoramas that were available to the public at the time in purpose-built built buildings and moving panoramas. And he uses that device as well to provide a bifurcated or split landscape view in the Oxbow. On the left, he creates pure wilderness, which is his kind of celebration of the sublime aspects of nature, which God has created for humans to appreciate and to revere. And then sharply divided on the right is a landscape of the Connecticut River Valley with the extraordinary oxbow-shaped river that many scholars, and I tend to agree, forms a question mark form. And across that landscape, it is not an Arcadian sunlit-filled view, I contend. Most scholars before me have interpreted it as an Arcadian view of a, a man acting in harmony with nature. I don't see it that way. I see it as Cole's disapproval of man's alteration of nature. So if you look at the right-hand side of the painting, every single square inch of the landscape, the camp painted canvas, has been altered by man. There are geometric lines of planted corn rows, every aspect. But the most telling is the distant mountain, which has been disfigured by deforestation. And when I examine the great panoramic drawing that Cole did in 1833, when he actually visits the site and begins to plot his great canvas, he actually indicates in graphite drawing the presence of deforestation that becomes so prominent in the northeastern landscape in the 1830s after his return. And so what Cole does, having looked at works by John Martin and other major European artists, he decides to interpret the deforestation in a kind of roughly interpreted Hebraic letters on the mountain. They can't be neatly translated, but they appear to be a rough form of Hebraic lettering that is an indication of God's displeasure with man's alteration of the pure landscape. It's also very telling that there is no real domestic harmony presented on the right side. There's no beautiful village or white church steeple in the landscape. It's really just man working to alter God's creation. Using infrared reflectography, you were able to, for lack of a better phrase, figure out how Cole made the painting. What did you find most significant in how, how he worked here? One of the inspirations, strangely, for this exhibition was when I acquired the very beautiful studio oil study for the Oxbow, which is, of course, in the exhibition. 
you know, during his travels in Europe, he learned how not only to do en plein air oil study, but also how to do a Finnish small oil study that incorporated all the ideas for the large composition by these kind of swift, swiftly executed shorthand brushstrokes. And so that was a kind of a revelation for me because interestingly, there's underdrawing under the small oil study, which shows all the thinking process and artist changes that he goes through in executing that. And then moving on to the large six foot canvas, it's a giant composition. He also does graphite underdrawing, building up to the final painted canvas. But we should backtrack perhaps to talk about the underdrawing for consummation. So the revelation is that he's in his Catskill studio, you know, on the second floor of a small farmhouse, painting the giant Course of Empire five-part series. These were very large canvases. And he finishes the first two quite rapidly because they're his comfort zone. They're a wilderness scene and then a great Arcadian pastoral scene. And they're beautifully done, beginning work in 1834. And then he takes on the central canvas, which is the great challenge, because it's a port scene with very elaborate architecture and figure drawings. He begins to plot out this composition, but really is having a very hard time because it's it's in many ways new territory for Cole. And so having already decided that he wanted to do the great Oxbow painting, he had prepared a canvas of the same size as the consummation painting. And it was kind of lying nearby and in fact, we also discovered, our painting conservator, Dorothy Mann, discovered that he had already primed the canvas intended for the Oxbow with a complementary pinkish orange ground, which is perfect for a northeastern landscape painting. But experiencing extreme frustration and writing to his patron, Lumen Reed, that he's just having a very hard time getting the layout for the very elaborate architectural features of consummation. He decides to start over and he conveniently has a canvas of the same size right nearby. And so he decides to sketch out another possible layout for consummation. So he does an elaborate graphite underdrawing of all of the architectural features for consummation on the canvas that he intends to use for the Oxbow. And I can assure your um, listeners that we have done an elaborate video <laughs> which takes you through the process because it, it's, it's complicated. And our video allows you to see underneath the Oxbow. And this video will be on our very impressive website for the show. And it will be in the exhibition itself. But let me try to explain the, the elaborate process. So he experiments with this elaborate graphite underdrawing under the oxbow. And then he gets permission from his patron, Lumen Reed, to stop work on consummation for a while, take a break, and paint a fresh new painting. Well, he had always wanted to do the oxbow. He was absolutely primed and ready to do it. He had the canvas ready to go with the right ground. And so he 
kind of ignores that underdrawing for consummation, which was an exercise to try to work out in his mind how he could make the composition work, and then does a graphite drawing for the oxbow over the graphite drawing for consummation, and then completes the canvas. And he's so excited. I mean, there are moments in artists' careers where everything comes together perfectly for them, and they have been working up to a particular moment to paint something for a decade. And this was the case for Cole with the Oxbow. In his small studio, he wants to get this painting ready for the spring, late April opening of the National Academy of Design in New York, make a big and surprising new splash in New York City for his audiences. So he does the small oil study, he then does the graphite oil study for the composition for the oxbow on the large canvas, and then paints the oxbow in about six weeks' time. So it's an extraordinary moment in his career. And I often believe that sometimes artists' greatest paintings are done very, very quickly because they're so primed and ready and enthused about this opportunity. I, I want to reinforce the, the timeline for listeners before going on to kind of my last question. Cole's first experience of, of the Oxbow is in 1827. He probably doesn't go up Mount Holyoke in that year. Mount Holyoke, quote, Mount Holyoke. It's under 1,000 feet tall. He finally does walk up it in 1833 in August after he returns to America, and then he paints it in 1836. So when you say a decade, it really is a decade of synthesization I'm a big Emersonian, so my 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 the last thing I want to raise is Emerson. I, I understand the grounding of this project and exhibition in the book in, in in painting and in the transatlantic world, but there's a lot here on the Oxbow in in the show and in the book, and it's hard not to notice that Cole made the Oxbow in 1836, the same year Ralph Waldo Emerson writes the most influential essay, American essay of the pre-Civil War period, Nature. The core tenets of what became Emerson's essay are in his journal, his source book, early on in 1836, by mid-January. That's the exact same month that Cole's essay on American scenery was published in American Monthly Magazine. Back to the Emerson side of the story, it wouldn't be a surprise, although I'm not sure we know for sure, if Emerson tested out passages for what would become nature on the traveling lecture circuit in the in the spring of, of 1836, but he probably did. And the text itself, the text of nature, was finished in late June, published in July, available in September, be, began to be, be published in July, and was on sale in Boston in, in September. So there's a matrix here, at least. Is, is it more than a matrix? Do we know anything about whether they knew of or were looking at each other. Emerson did have artist friends, although a sculptor, not a painter, mostly. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, scholars have attempted to draw a direct connection between the two men. I mean, Cole was a great writer and a decent poet. <laughs> Possible to believe they weren't aware, they had to have been aware of each other's writings, and Emerson must have been aware of Cole's paintings. I mean, Cole exhibited his paintings in Boston all the time. So it's, it's impossible to believe that they didn't know each other, or I mean, know of each other, I should say. But what's very frustrating is that neither one of them ever mentioned the other in their writings. And in our, our Cole catalog and exhibition, 
we really tried very hard to stick to the facts. You know, we know that Cole met Turner and he met Constable and he saw this particular painting. And so we were really diligent about that, but it's certainly impossible that they weren't aware of each other. And if you look at, as you've already pointed out, if you look at their actual writings, Cole's writings about nature, Emerson's writings about nature, they're saying many of the same things and certainly responding to the same trigger points. But again, I emphasize that Cole is hypersensitive due to his childhood to the alteration of nature, perhaps even more than Emerson was. But it, it's something that you know is hanging out there and hopefully one day <laughs> someone will find the letter or the journal entry that will put them together. They're really even the first two Americans, along with maybe Catlin, who call for some version of conservation or preservation of, of, of landscape. Cole in, I think, the aforementioned essay, and Emerson in 1844's The Young American Lecture, in which he specifically calls for the preservation of landscape. I mean, for me, Emerson is the pivot between America thinking about land and uh, as something you consume and thinking about landscape, which opens up other possibilities. But we see those same ideas in visual form at Cole, in Cole at the exact same time. Emerson is applying them in, in his most active period around nature, which is kind of 1834-ish to 40 eight-ish, before the Mexican-American War. Yes. I mean, it's also important to recognize that they're, they're more than likely reading the same writings. We suggest, or I suggested in my essay, that Cole was clearly influenced by the writings of Baron von Humboldt, the 1804 publications, which were widely available in the United States. And, you know, that's kind of a starting point again for thinking about the study of nature, if not the preservation of nature. And, and Humboldt was hugely important in Concord, probably more to Thoreau than to Emerson, but Emerson couldn't have missed it. Emerson struggled with the idea, uh, initially struggled anyway, with the idea of categorization and classification because he thought it took some of the magic out of out of out of nature and landscape. But he came around to it, and and his Unitarian circle did too. George Catlin, who you mentioned, actually visited von Humboldt successfully. So that's very much in the air. But what's so surprising and, and what we try to, you know, really point out at the very end of our show is that while Cole takes Church on as his student in the years 1844 to 46, imparting a love of nature, you know, the way in which to approach nature and revere nature, he teaches his friend Asher B. Durand as well. After Cole's death, these artists fully embrace Manifest Destiny. Our show ends with Durand's great painting, Progress, which is a celebration of expansionist policies and industrial presence in the landscape. So there is a kind of break philosophically between Cole and his followers. Emerson and his followers too, really, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's still more to be reassessed in looking at the larger story of the National Landscape School in the United States that we constantly point out was not described as the Hudson River School until the early 1870s. It was a term that Cole certainly never heard. And it was a derogatory term, which 
cast the school as provincial painters rooted in the Hudson Valley at a time when American artists were inspired by new French and European painting styles. Yeah, it's so, it's so, I, I mean, I think the show, I haven't seen the show yet. We're talking while you're still installing it. But I, I think that the show and certainly the book seems to really point to kind of this 1836 to 1848 moment as being one specific moment. In 1848, you get the Mexican-American War, and all of a sudden, it, Northeastern intellectuals, which is where all of America's intellectuals were pretty much, Northeastern intellectuals seem to have this moment of realization, oh, oh, oh my God, the Southerners have taken over the expansionist idea, and they're trying to expand the slave power with it. And there is, for many Northeastern intellectuals, Emerson included, a reassessment of, of a lot of things around American landscape expansionism and power. And, and the Northeastern intellectuals, especially around Emerson, are, are enormously hostile to the war. And then we see a painter painting like, like you know, Duran makes after the war that is fully embracing of the push west, west, and further west. There's you know, we really, one of the things I think we're going to see in this show is that the transatlantic history really feeds into and motivates America's thinking through of, of land and, 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 and then landscape, because the ideas of landscape come after land use. Betsy Kornhauser, uh, thank you so very much. Can't wait for the show. The book is amazing. And thanks for speaking. Well, with thanks me. so much for uh, talking with me. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Experience First Sculpture, Hand Axe to Figure Stone, an exhibition that explores prehistoric tools and collected objects as evidence of the beginnings of artistic intention and craft. In the first museum exhibition to present ancient hand axes as works of art, the show highlights the aesthetic qualities of each stone and provides crucial historical and scientific information to give the viewer a deeper understanding of human history, as well as an enriched appreciation for humankind's early ability to sculpt beautiful objects. On view through April 28th at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Morgan Library curator Joel Smith, the curator of Peter Hujar, Speed of Life. The exhibition, which is on view at the Morgan through May 20th, 
includes 140 photographs and surveys Hujar's entire career. Hujar was one of the major photographers of 1970s and 80s New York. His work, which included portraiture, architectural photography, fashion photography, and more, is best known for being unusually straightforward and direct, and as such, in contrast with his more self-consciously artsy New York contemporary, Robert Maplethorpe. The exhibition catalog is published by Aperture. It's easily the most important publication about Hujar. Amazon sells it for $34. Joel Smith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The first Peter Hujar image in your catalog and the first one in your show is a picture of Hujar jumping. It's a self-portrait. He made a number of these in which he's first nude and running or jumping and later, as in this picture, clothed, running and jumping. Why did he make them and why did he keep on making them? One thing Hujar didn't do a lot of is explaining. And he, for one thing, he never had the opportunity or requirement to explain his work to anybody. And for another, I think he wanted the work to speak for itself. But when you see him playing, I think part of the answer is that he really was playful. And in the catalog, I link this image of him not only jumping, but kicking a foot back and saluting the camera to the portrait that he had made almost 20 years earlier of his high school English teacher, Daisy Alden, the most important adult in his young life, who's raising a finger and somehow admonishing or questioning her own words with a lovely smile on her face. Uh, I think the two of them shared a sense of humor about self-presentation that we don't have a lot of direct clues about, but I feel some of that same play going on in this picture and other images in which he's sort of making a, not exactly a joke, but a game of the process of self-presentation. I wanted to start with that picture rather than with Ujar himself, because it's such a distinct starting point for a show. And if we go back to the nude jumping picture, it's kind of a distinct starting point for a, a career in a way. But let's go back to the beginning of the show as as concept, the show as something you have done. Why did it take so long for a Peter Hujar show to get done, and why did you want to do it? Hujar in his lifetime was good at working against his own interests. He had very high ambitions for how his work should be seen and could be difficult with those who were in a position to help him out. And since Hujar's time, that's been one of many historical impediments that people have tried to overcome. The state was carried by one gallery after another. And I remember myself as a fellow at a museum in New York in the 1990s, being present when a box of his prints was delivered for the inspection of the curators. And at that time, the response of those in the department was, I think, typical of the way that he was seen, which was carefully looking through every print in the box and concluding, well, this is what we've seen Maplethorpe do, all right, but what else is there? What what was being shown was his portraits, and the portraits looked the most like a retread of something that people had seen before, which was a sort of chronicle of life on the Lower East Side. And it was hard to individuate and see what was so distinct about Hujar as long as that perfectly shaped obstacle was was in the way. It was a, it's a historical case of one reputation occluding another. And as time has passed, I think it's become easier for a variety of reasons to see what was so distinct about 
Pujar's photography. You mentioned Maplethorpe a moment ago in your catalog essay. You noted that in Hujar's own time, he was kind of stuck betwixt Dean Arbus and Maplethorpe. And you recount a great story about how, how Arbus herself seemed to not- notice that and made sure Hujar knew about it. <laughs> yes, at, a, at the uh, workshop in 1967 that he took with uh, Avedon and Marvin Israel, Hujar introduced himself to the visiting artist who that evening happened to be Deanne Arbus. She had just opened the show at MoMA the night before with Gary Winogrand and Lee Friedlander, and she was the star of that show. So she must have felt on top of the world. And when Hujar introduced himself at the end, she said, I know who you are. And this is the story that he told to David Wanarovich some 17 years later. And it's hard to know what exactly she meant by that and to what extent the story had grown in his mind in the meantime. (laughs) But what he understood was I needed to back off from somebody who perhaps had been a really important influence in the the previous couple of years and uh, do something different. I guess another of the things Arbus had noticed was that Hujar liked to leave the black border around his prints, which for her was something of a signature. I guess it was. And Hujar pretty plausibly suggests that he and a lot of other people thought of it at the same time. And he just describes it as a 60s kind of design thing. He said a a photograph looked good with a black border around it. In Arbus, we read it as a sign of honesty that you're seeing the entire frame. And it's characteristic of Hujar that he really saw it in terms of an aesthetic issue. Today, when we think of Hujar, we think of the portraits first, I think. What makes them stand out? What makes them good? What, what, What in them do you keep noticing? I see the same thing in, in Hujar's portraits as in the rest of the work, which is just the, to put it simply, the optical fascination with something being itself, <laughs> to, to understand that there's a surface in front of you, which is all that the camera can pick up. And you're limited as a photographer to the light coming in the front of the apparatus. But you know, as a image maker, that there's a mystery there, that there's something more. And Hujar is fascinated with surfaces and with capturing down to the darkest shadows, the detail of what's going on in front of the camera. But on another dimension, that of time, you have a sense of things being slowed down, of somebody having had time to arrange themselves or to get lost in their own reverie. And in a sense, to forget that he's in front of them. They're, they're alone with the camera, I think is the psychological conceit of a lot of Hujar's pictures. And that quality is something that, that really naturally translates into some of the other kinds of image photographs of buildings or still lifes or cityscapes. In a portrait, it can be a little unsettling and there can even be a sense of gravity or of self-indulgence, I guess, on the part of the, of the sitters. But when you spend time with one picture after another, it really comes through as a, a characteristic worldview is kind of the only way I can describe it. It's not to do with confrontation and it's not to do with idealization. It has to do with appreciating the specificity, the singularity of whatever it is he's looking at. I think my favorite might be the portrait of Isaac Hayes. Do you have a favorite or one that you think is a particular, or maybe a a portrait of a human (laughs) that you think is a particularly good example? We'll get to the others in a moment. (laughs) The first photograph of Hujar's that I ever acquired for an institution was a portrait of Lavinia Co-op, 
uh, performer with the Blue Lips troupe who were performing at a theater nearby Hujar's loft. He seemed to spend a couple of hours with them. We, we see from the contact sheets that he's photographing the whole group. He's photographing individual members of it. And on some people, he spends a couple of roles. But on Lavinia, he made only about four exposures and seemed to realize right away that he had got what he needed. And it's the most striking picture of the bunch by far to me. Lavinia has in the picture a very masculine face. You can see his hand, which he's leaning his uh, chin on. But on top of his head, which is angled in this quizzical sort of way, there's a ponytail that doesn't quite read as a woman's ponytail or as something left over from a long-haired hippie face or anything of the sort. It just seems to be its own puzzle for the camera. I dare you to make sense of the way that I am. And that really stuck with me. And it was, to me, a kind of uh, challenge for making sense of just what the portraitist was doing in, in addressing somebody with such a distinctive individual manner. There are also at least a dozen, uh, I'm going to use the word portraits, portraits of animals in the show. Cows, snakes, several snakes. Are they portraits? And why do you think Hujar was so interested in them? The, 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 first, the first and, and in a way, I think very important animal portrait that he made and that's, that's in the, the show is a picture of a horse on a hilltop in West Virginia. Uh, he was on a road trip with a couple of friends in 1969 and made that picture. And it's a few years before he really begins to concentrate on, on animals as a subject. And he clearly needed to spend a little bit of time. He tries to, he, he goes to a complete profile view of the horse. So it's like a child's idea of a drawing of a horse. Here's the legs, here's the tail and the, and the head. But there's a real sincere and thoughtful quality <laughs> to this horse that persuades you that the horse, like the human subjects in Hujar's photography, has slowed down and acknowledged what's going on and that it's somehow being regarded by somebody who's trying to make sense of it. You look even closer and you can see the flies on the flanks of this horse. The hilltops in the background lend a beautiful sort of sense of atmosphere to it. And you can see that you're addressing this individual in its environment. And those who watched him photographing animals said that he would just speak to them in a conversational tone, exactly as if he was talking to a person, not baby talk, not animal talk, but just a constant patter that I think probably served to let them understand that he didn't find anything remarkable about being there, just a couple of feet away from them and photographing. And I, I think there's everything in those pictures that we have in a human portrait, except for the human part of being a human being. They are definitely live creatures and intelligent creatures, but it's just not an intelligence that we can quite get to. And the suggestion to me is that the same thing might be true of human portraits, that we're projecting onto them the understanding and the meaning that we read inside them. Have you found there to be interesting or meaningful differences between his portraits of clothed figures and his portraits of nudes? I'm talking about humans here. Ha ha. <laughs> The the analogy that's helped me the most for thinking about all of Hujar's photographs of people is 
therapy. He was in therapy from the time he was in high school in the early 1950s until the end of his life. And we know that it was important to him and that he valued it in part because he thanked his therapist in the one book that he published, uh, Portraits in Life and Death. Uh, his uh, his uh, therapist was among the four people that he that he thanked specifically. And people describe sitting for him being this process of indeterminate length. You might be there for 10 minutes or you might be there for four and a half hours. And he would remain silent, change film, perhaps adjust lights, but really give people time to come out of who they were and become something different than what they present in public all the time at their own pace and in their own manner. Gary Schneider, who posed nude for him for two pictures called Gary Schneider in Contortion uh, that are side by side in the exhibition, um, said that he really got no guidance from Hugar at all. And I think it's quite typical. And so the difference between a nude and somebody clothed is just a difference in the conditions that he's setting as a therapist, so to speak. What it is he's laying as a challenge for how to be in front of the camera. You note in your essay that Hujar didn't make a lot of political or socio-political work, but one such picture he did make in 1969 is famously, and in the context of the time, confrontationally exuberant. What is it, and how did he come to make it? This is a photograph of members of the Gay Liberation Front uh, running towards him in the middle of 19th Street in October of 1969. The Stonewall uprising had occurred at the end of June, and Hujar was there along with his boyfriend at the time, Jim Forat, on the second night of the confrontation with the police. Forat was organizing for the Gay Liberation Front, which is the first group to cite homosexuality in its name as its political reason for being. This very much on the model of anti-war and civil rights groups. And Forat asked Hujar to make a photograph that could work for a recruitment poster for the Gay Liberation Front. And that fall, they got a group of people together to make the picture. And it was the poster was produced with the slogan come out and join the sisters and brothers of the gay liberation front uh, in time for the next year's gay liberation march the first of those in 1970 uh, on the anniversary of stonewall unfortunately as i learned in the course of producing the show most of the copies of that poster were stolen from the car the the trunk of john erdman who had been tasked with posting it around town. Uh, some of them went up on walls, but it's as rare a piece of ephemera as it is because most of the copies no longer existed. But that's the, the one time that uh, Hujar made a work with a very specific political purpose. We'll have it on manpodcast.com, but listeners may recall it as one of the covers, maybe the only cover for Martin Duberman's book, Stonewall, his history of, of, of the thing, the place, the time. I could ask about the uh, David Wanarovich pictures, but I think those get talked about and, and shown a lot. The Susan Sontag portrait that Hujar made is probably the most famous picture he made. I don't know much of anything about how it came to be. How did it come to be, and was it part of his book project, of Hujar's book project? 
I believe so. Yeah, it's the the, the portrait of Sontag is one of a number that Hujar made in a batch in 1975 when he knew that he was going to be producing a book, uh, which became Portraits in Life and Death. And he jotted down in his job book the people that he was photographing. It begins, she's not on the very first page of the book, but she's within the first, the first couple of pages. And this is at a time when Hujar was sometimes photographing people in his loft, which, which served as his studio, and sometimes in their own homes. And Sontag, he photographed in her home. So she's lying on her own bed. The roles of film that include those pictures uh, on the bed also include her in her office with German Shepherd and uh, in an office chair and on a rooftop wearing a fleece jacket. But the, the pictures on the bed are the ones where you can see her really relaxing into the role as subject of his camera and really kind of enacting the part of somebody who ponders, somebody who lies back and thinks uh, and composes herself as a contemplator. Finally, you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that, that you worked at Princeton. At, at Princeton is home to the Minor White Archive. White and Hujar kind of represent almost opposite spectrums of the American gay experience. I mean, both were photographers, both, both worked in black and white, but they're, they're a generation, maybe almost two full generations apart. Did you find yourself thinking about one in terms of the other or about the two of them in any particular ways? Minor White works his way through a variety of different metaphors that allow him to deal, to oversimplify it a bit, with his sexuality as a subject of photography. Abstraction is one. Sequential photography is another way that he can see the nuance in things and present the world as this complex series of pondered and metaphorical subjects. Uh, a frozen waterfall isn't just a frozen bunch of water. It has to do with an impediment to flow of some, some kind, uh, so to speak. And Hujar, leaving home at 16 and setting up his apartment in the midst of Greenwich Village, was really choosing a life where there was no need for metaphor. He didn't have to uh, ever be in a closet. People said that he did not present as a homosexual, and it happened more than once in his life that he was mistaken for straight by women who thought he might be boyfriend material. And that's true of other artists in his circle uh, as well. Professionally, he worked the way that he did. It was not necessary in the fashion industry or later as a portraitist on the Lower East Side for Hujar to pretend he was anything he was not. And coming out of the role of a fashion photographer and into the role of a chronicler of a gay subculture was not that big uh, a leap. That I think is the, is the biggest difference is that Hujar was kind of born to the situation that, that Minor White could never quite find his way to. Their portraits couldn't be more different. Minor Whites are so inward looking and Hujars are so right there on the surface and often celebrate surfaces such as the feathers uh, in what uh, say Isaac Hayes is wearing. They're really different, different men. Joel Smith, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.